Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Paula Eagle. Paula is the Quality Assurance Manager at Berkshire-based domiciliary care provider Care Response. Paula, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. It's a real pleasure having you. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion, Paula, is to really ascertain your take on leadership as a whole. And I think it's fair to say that leadership is something that's been put to the test more so than ever at the moment, isn't it? With the emergence of COVID-19 and different business leaders and leaders of various organisations having to feel their way through what ultimately is an unprecedented crisis. So for somebody working on the front line in domiciliary care, such as yourself, how has it been trying to get through the last few weeks and months? Because I can imagine the challenges have been tremendous. Um, well, they have been, but to be honest with you, I think in domiciliary care, you're always aware of how quickly something can change and you deal with emergencies day in, day out, and you have to think on your feet. So for me, yes, it's been challenging and for our team, but I think because um, I work with a great management team, and we're all able to share our, our ideas and views and how, how we manage things. It's actually not been too bad. Um, obviously, the worry has been for our clients and for our carers. But because of good communication, um, I feel that, you know, we've sort of taken it all on board and, and taken it in our stride, really. So, so yes, I don't. Yes, it's been challenging, but I think for me, possibly more challenging on a personal level than a work level. Mm. And considering that there's been a renewed focus on mental health and well-being during this time in particular, I'm interested to understand how the staff at Care Response, as well as, of course, the clients that you work with, have sort of taken to this period and how they've applied themselves. To be honest with you, they you know, we've we've had one-to-one conversations with them. We check in with them anyway weekly and also with our clients um, over the telephone, checking their okays, checking if they need anything, checking if they, they you know, how they're coping and physically managing and balancing um, work and home. Um, you know, I've completed supervisions with each and every one of them um, over the phone. Um, we do see them once a week when they come in and collect all of their PPE for the preceding week. So we're checking in with them frequently. Um, and they actually, due to the lockdown, they actually are enjoying going out to work because that's Mm. their only form of normality. And I think when you're a true carer, it's inbred in you that it's part and parcel of the job. So for us, it was just, okay, we need to step things up a little. We need to refresh on infection control and, you know, what the risks are, et cetera. Um, Yes, in the beginning, it was all, you know, I think the managers, myself and my colleague, my two other colleagues, we worried probably more than what the carers did because, you know, our, our aim was to make sure that everyone is safe, our clients, our carers, you know, that that was our ultimate aim. And thankfully, we've been able to um, support that and uh, manage that very well, you know, to date. 
We've not had any symptom, uh, any clients with COVID or care workers. But um, yes, I mean, you know, there were a couple of staff that were originally sort of like, oh, well, I don't think I'll be going into a client if they've got mm. COVID. And we just listen to them and we say, well, let's worry about that when and if that happens. But I think as time went on and they they were they were getting all the training that they needed. We, we had Zoom meetings. We arranged for the infection control lead of, um, you know, CCG to talk to them. Uh, we were emailing them talking to them, sending memos, etc. So they had all the information they needed to feel that what they were doing was all, they were doing all the right things to protect themselves and their clients. So there was one instance where they, they felt that they could have been placed in a vulnerable situation and it possibly was, although it, and it turned out that it wasn't. Um, but actually I thought, well, actually it wasn't, the fear was worse than the reality. So, you know, they, they just actually just just getting on with it as normal, really. Yeah, they, they've coped incredibly mm. well. I mean, we obviously have um, pointed them in the right direction and explained if they're struggling with mental health. Um, they've all had certain personal, you know, not all of them, but some have had more personal challenges to face than others. Um, and we've supported in that. And, you know, we've even had to say to a couple of carers, sorry, you can't work for it. You have to make a decision where you work, in a home or with us. Yes, we've shot ourselves in the foot, but our main aim is safety and risk and risk assessing. So, you know, in that respect, everyone can see that we're doing our utmost to protect each other and the clients. And we've offered and told them around the mental health support that's out there. Um, or if they need to come and have a chat with us, we're here. And they know that anyway, because we're a small family-run business. So it's very um, personable. And I think that's, that's, you know, they're aware of that. And I think it's testament to the people management skills that you've shown as leaders that that worry has been able to dissipate quite well. It's only natural that people do have concerns when there is so much uncertainty as there is at the moment. And speaking of uncertainty, there's been a great deal of debate during this time, hasn't there, Paula, about how clear government guidelines have been throughout the pandemic and also going into the future with new COVID secure regulations coming in. Um, I'm just interested to understand as to whether you feel that throughout the pandemic it's been clear for yourself as to what's been expected of you and that's continuing to be the case going forward as well as things start to revert to some kind of new normal as people are saying yes I think to be honest I think the support has been there and you know you know my my um my colleagues the other managers and myself are constantly you know we talk daily we're working from home currently um because one of our managers is a non-driver so obviously we couldn't bring the non-driver in can't car share etc um but i think for us yes in the beginning it was how you interpret the information um coming through from public health england and um, but there was a lot of support networks out there with regards to the local authority uh, with berkshire care association they've been absolutely fantastic i can't sing their praises enough um and I think it was all managers were able to actually actually brought all managers together from care the care background because domiciliary care can be quite isolating 
um, yes, you go to network events, et cetera, et cetera. But this has actually pulled everyone in together. So for me, the support, we've supported each other. Um, there were a couple of evenings where you, you see guidance come through on an email on your phone and you, you read it and you, it's not always clear. It's not always clear, the guidance, in the early days. Don't get me wrong. And it, it's how you interpret that. But we have support networks in place to ask for guidance, whether that's through CCG and the Infection Control Aids, Berkshire Care Association and the local authority. And to be to be fair, I think the government have done the best that they could do with the knowledge they had. And, you know, I, I feel that they did everything. They will do. They, they had a challenge that was new to them to face. Mm. And, and what a job that was, you know. And I think my hat goes off to them because I think they, they, they've helped financially with supporting in the care sector and outside of care sector. You know, they're, they're doing everything they can. And I think, you know, that is testament to how we're coping now. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it's all been managed extremely well. Yes, there's been times where you, you would worry about PPE, etc. But we were able to source that. And, you know, whether or not we, you know, we might have paid the extortionate amount, <laughs> the cost. <laughs> but um, at the end of the day, you know, you, you just have to do what you have to do if you need it. And, um, so yes, that was a little bit frustrating in the beginning because we'd like to have more, but then we had plenty anyway to manage and things have calmed down a little anyway. So we're able to source PPE um, frequently. So that's not an issue anymore. So yeah, I, I, I actually think that leadership has, has really stepped up um, with regards to um, the pandemic and supporting each other as providers. So I think some, I think it, a positive will come out of all of this. And that's just one of a few positives because it's certainly going to breed some real resilience in those businesses, organisations, etc. that do get through this quite challenging period. It's brought us all closer together with this sense of national unity. There's a renewed focus on our working practices, on sustainability, on mental health and well-being, um, as we've touched on. Um, but also it's character building for this generation of business leaders as well, in the sense that there's vital experience of crisis management and the experience that employees will have of going beyond their comfort zones is also likely to benefit them as well. And they've brought the best out in themselves within this time of adversity, really, haven't they? Yes, definitely. I mean, I'm a more mature lady. I've been in care <clears throat> for a long time. Um, I've also worked in the private sector. So I have good, I was an operational manager in the private sector and now in the care sector. So for me, I was able to, to bring both um, both experiences together to be able to manage, plan, organize, support. Um, so for me, you know, I, I just felt it, I was able to utilize all, all what I've learned over the years, basically. And I was, I'm a strong person. Don't get me wrong. I think, you know, I've got a strong management team and that really helps. And we've got the support of our directors, which are, are, you know, they're fantastic. So I think it's all to do with the structure and the support and the management that team that you have in place 
Um, you know, it's the same old, you know, the, the saying around, you know, every cog in a wheel, so to speak. But but we all pulled together. Um, yes, there were decisions that had to be made <clears throat> that we we um, had to explore, which was the right way, clarify, is that correct? Is our understanding correct? But there's information out there. There's always somebody to ask. Um, and we... We risk assessed all of our decisions in the early days because we needed to be sure that we'd we'd made the right decision based on the risks, and we felt that confident that in our decision making process that by risk assessing and having good reasons why we made a decision which we've made, we felt confident with that. So that's how we basically managed, you know, in the early days. But um, now it just seems like the new normal me you know the girls mm. aren't the carers aren't stressed about working no one mentions it I mean we we do they are fortunate you know they really appreciate all the gifts that we've been able to provide to them just to show our appreciation from lots of companies that aren't in the care sector as well so I think the country has really come together I would agree with that, certainly, Paula. And if we do think about that, what that new normal is going to look like in your case, before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, what do you envision for yourself and for Care Response over the next year as we move through into the next stage of the pandemic and begin to embrace the challenges of the uh, the new normal? And what do you really hope to achieve in that period as well? Um, I think for us, it's, it's made us, I mean, you know... <laughs> we've been able to manage the, the service from a different environment, from working from home. It's made us think about working smarter, um, you know, using technology to support when these times, you know, when when, time, when these times happen, because we don't know what the future might hold. We could have another peak. It could be another pandemic. So I think for us, it's actually... Um, enabled us to probably think outside the box, whereas I think possibly you can become, um, you can be in your comfort zone and go with the status quo and not look at how how we can change things to improve, to work smarter, to be more productive and things like that. So I think, you know, it's more about um, leading us into the 21st century. That's why I feel like um, a lot of companies now looking at the different ways of working in terms of you know even if it comes to care planning um you know saving paper all those things really and yeah just working smarter it's going to be interesting to see just how that really comes to uh, some sort of fruition over the next few weeks and months and what the long-term results of this period of self-reflection are going to be. And, you know, Paula, given how informative it's actually been discussing some of these issues with you on the programme today, I think it would be fantastic to perhaps even have you back on the air with us sometime in the future to maybe discuss what has changed in the time between and maybe catch up as to how things at Care Response are getting on as well. Yes, that's fine. That's not a problem. I mean, it would be nice to um, also include my colleague, the registered manager, um, Diane, as well. I think, you know, obviously that, that would be be good for her to join as well. And I can arrange that um, at some point. But yeah, I, mean, I think in a couple of months, it would be good to, to be able to reflect um, 
you know, I think it's actually quite exciting how things are changing to a degree. Um, because I think it's, historically, domiciliary care was, you know, carers had a timesheet, you know, paper timesheet and, and, and things like that. But, you know, we can improve the ways of working to improve the service even further to our clients. Uh, being, you know, I mean, we've always tried to be uh, reactive, sorry, proactive as well as reactive, which you have to be in certain situations. But, um, you know, it, it's improving, you know, communication. I mean, I, I, I do feel we are very supportive. Our communication is, is good. As well as the girls, you know, we wouldn't have the ratings that we have. and And obviously our clients wouldn't be as happy as they are. Um, but there's always ways to to improve things. So, yeah, I think it's quite exciting. I mean, I'm not um, a pessimistic person anyway. I'm quite an optimistic person. And um, challenges motivate me. So I think, yeah, it, I just get on with it. I think, right, okay, let's just deal with it. Let's just deal with what we've got to deal with. We can We can sort this out. We can work it out. And our main focus has been on the care workers and our clients. And, and you know, we have had to, you know, we've, we've worked long hours. We still do. But, you know, at the end of the day, my, you know, the management team and I want to be able to go home at night and sleep well and know that everyone's safe. That's exactly it, um, Paula. And it's been a real pleasure hearing um, you discuss some of these um, issues uh, today, for sure. And until we do touch base again in the uh, the future um, on these uh, matters, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on. And hopefully by that time, there'll also okay. be some more positive news to share. Okay, lovely. Nice speaking to you. Likewise, that was Paula Eagle speaking, the Quality Assurance Manager at Care Response. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. He rose to prominence during his career, did Lord Blunkett, to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, all despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 when he was anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, his old constituency. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as my colleague Matthew relished speaking with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can 
uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up 
and they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, 
a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centres in London. 
But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future 
in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002 when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why 
the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well Uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer, and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. 
We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him 
which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.